We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players, as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Okay, so uh, the other week, Henry Kissinger passed away, and I thought that would be a great opportunity for us to briefly discuss Kissinger, but more so discuss foreign policy, world order, and um, what we can learn from, uh, from, from sort of his experience and uh, where, where we're at today. So first, uh, Samuel, when we start with any, any sort of reflections or reactions to, to, to Kissinger? I think that Henry Kissinger's career demonstrates the importance of both having a concrete and worked out theory of how the world works and also being uh, someone dedicated to socializing and making connections to have that knowledge reach an impact. I think that many people um, overfocus on formal titles, right? Where, for example, uh, people might not realize that he was only Secretary of State between 1969 and 1977. So that's actually not that long. Those are tumultuous, important years, but that's a mere eight years. And in the 1980s, actually, some of his foreign policy was considered unpopular, even on uh, the right. For example, uh, President Ronald Reagan basically ran, among other things, on critiquing Henry Kissinger's policy and the idea of detente with the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, yet, in, through the 80s, they became friends. And he would show up in the Oval Office and give his advice to the president. And he has, in fact, continued this unofficial diplomatic role for decades. In fact, up until, uh, you know, this year, he was still making uh, visits with various statesmen. And so what about the, the ideas itself? You mentioned you sort of the, the dedication to, to, to outcomes. What, uh, what, what did Kissinger bring to sort of the uh, sort of world order or foreign policy discourse uh, that, that was particularly important? I mean, I think we could uh, write several books on that. And there, in fact, have been many articles over the last few days with people reflecting on his uh, life and on his death. Um, I, of course, have a personal bias and I actually have a bit of a soft spot for him uh, because of his deep interest in history. And because of his deep interest in history, I think that it is incorrect to summarize him as just a hard-headed realist. I think, by the way, that is an amazing brand, right? It is always good to be branded as a hard-headed realist, but then no one really begrudges you your choices, right? The choices are driven by circumstance, even if you are co-forging the circumstances as they proceed. Um, he had a deep interest in basically the history of diplomacy itself. What is the problem of diplomacy? What is even the possibility of what some people might dismiss as uh, easily replaceable 
you know, this diplomatic summit could have been an email, right? Like maybe we just need to, is this just a texting function between countries? What even is diplomacy? I think the real answer is, uh, as he would interpret it, it's actually not a foreign policy realist position where if we simplify a foreign policy realist position is that states have national interests and tend to, sometimes imperfectly, act in accordance with those interests. Yet if I were to do an exegesis on his many works, including his doctoral thesis, many of his books, um, you know, his, you know, even his uh, master's was actually quite good and worth reading. Uh, his statement would be that diplomacy is often about the domestic politics of the country you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, you know, visiting that you're, uh, representing your own country in. Uh, you look at the balance of power in the country you are visiting. You think about the balance of power within the country that you have departed. And then you figure out what about the foreign policy, the official stated position is immovable and what is, what is, what can be changed, what can be fixed, what is in the domestic political interest of the person you're speaking to. And I think that's a very strong uh, upgrade to foreign policy realism. Not only do states have interests and reasons of state, those are perhaps what is most easy in political theory to justify, to act on. It's what legitimates war. It's what legitimates taxation, the whole stack. You know, there's a, a quite accurate saying that war is the health of the state. Basically, you can derive backwards from the ability to wage war all of the authority that we usually take to be the uh, normal and standard authority of a modern state, whether it's governed by, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, Vladimir Putin, or, you know, it's a Western style democracy. These states have basically the same type of authorities. So the upgrade to that model is that not only do states have interests, but political factions have interests, too. And we don't propagandize political factions as, you know, the reason the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan was, was this or that faction of the Communist Party being ascended or this or that faction within the Soviet bureaucracy. We say, oh, the Soviet Union did this or that. But in reality, there's no one individual that is the Soviet Union. Even Vladimir Putin today is not Russia. There are factions within Russia, as we saw with the failed Wagner coup. And he has to deal with those factions. The same is true of Xi. And also the same is true of uh, Joe Biden. And just because our system is democratic, right, um, in this vague, broad sense of a modern parliamentary liberal democracy, um, or, you know, presidential democracy in the U.S.'s case, uh, this doesn't mean that all the mechanisms and factions determining foreign policy are democratic. So this is what I would call like a deeper realism. It's like a realism of political order and within and without a country. So if I were to do my personal exegesis, again, the work is so vast, and sprawling. I would say the true reading of Henry Kissinger has not yet definitively been presented, where I think that his reflections on the diplomatic efforts post the Napoleonic War, I think that historical text in particular, where he analyzes statesmen like, you know, um, Metternich and so on in the early 19th century, trying to recreate uh, something called the Concert of Europe, which was this, you know, balance of power 
arrangement that was supposed to preserve the peace and pre prevent a large war like the Napoleonic one. In that analysis, he proposes that world order is only possible when the elites of various countries operate in basically the same system. And our, uh, you know, their careers are similar, their interests are similar. So when these elites meet, they understand each other. They intuitively know each other's uh, strengths, weaknesses, but also political interests. What makes you look strong? What makes you look weak at home? We can meet and deal as politicians and set policy for each of our countries without endangering each other's position as individuals. Um, so that I think super interesting. And then I think he, he's probably spoken on this many, many times, but reading from his work and some of his interviews, uh, I think his opinion would be that we currently do not have a world order, but there's something like an anarchy because there are at least two fundamentally different systems in power and probably something like five or six systems uh, for other weaker countries. Can we really say an American politician understands uh, the incentives of the uh, Iranian Guardian Council or even the proper incentives of Vladimir Putin or the incentives of Xi Jinping? A country is easy to analyze. Everyone can talk about the geopolitics of Russia. Well, no, okay, maybe not everyone, right? Or the geopolitics of the Taiwan Strait. It's much trickier to say, oh, actually, this concrete thing is the foundation of their power. These are the five people that this or that uh, head of state has to keep happy, right? That is much harder to do. And I think, I think Henry Kissinger would say that was absolutely vital and that that has been uh, kind of, it was the focus of his life. And let's flesh that out a bit further. If we, you mentioned, you know, we can understand Russia's interests or, or it's easier to understand China's interests, harder to understand Xi's interests or Putin's interests or the Iranian guard you mentioned. Why don't you give an example, one of them or multiple of them and say, hey, if we understood their interests as individuals or factions, how would we treat, say, uh, sort of our situation with China or Russia or, or Iran um, a bit different? Well, um, we can we can go straight to the applied, though. I obviously would would love to talk about some of the historical books and a little bit more about Henry himself as well. But uh, maybe there's a way to loop back to that, right? The interests of Iran's elite currently lie in trying to get much higher oil revenue. They're actually not a rich country. They're rich in raw resources, oil. Uh, but the sanctions have actually worked over the long run. And I think the sanctions worked because Iran was not a fully industrialized country. So unlike Saudi Arabia, which is the regional uh, rival uh, that can sell oil and has been selling oil for a long time to Western countries, allowing it to reinvest again into its oil industry over and over again in this kind of virtuous cycle until it made use of these huge abundant uh, you know, natural reserves, these proven reserves and these like speculated to be viable oil reserves. Um, by the way, the state of those reserves is kind of a state secret to this day. So, uh, if you try to predict something like, I don't know, peak oil or whatever, uh, it's very tricky to know when the Saudis are lying about their oil, uh, reserves, right? What, what still lies under the ground. Um, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is fabulously wealthy because of this. 
Iranian elites are not. So every time you see someone on the Iranian Guardian Council uh, try to reach some sort of accommodation with the West or some sort of deal with the Western world, I think what they're really trying to do is raise state revenue. Because it's kind of looking at it from their perspective. It's like Iran has a huge, a huge amount of natural wealth. Why can't we sell this to the United States? If we could sell this to the United States the way Saudi Arabia does to Western Europe, we would have all the money we need uh, for, you know, developing our country in line with the Islamist philosophy for, you know, building up our military. And that's precisely the reason that they can't. They are not allowed to because them building up their military and let alone them maybe successfully carrying out some form of industrialization, uh, I think that would actually be very dangerous for U.S. allies in the region, including Israel, including Saudi Arabia, and honestly, in the grand scheme of things, even Turkey, though Turkey has a frenemy relationship with Iran, uh, just as it does with every other major power in the region, Russia, uh, more and more the United States itself. Um, for Iran, it's then the Guardian Council is in an internal power struggle with a democratic-ish element. So when people hear democratic element of power, they might think I'm referring to the liberal faction in Iran, the reformists. No, the reformists in Iran are very highly educated people. And a lot of them are actually Islamic clerics, because if you're a scholarly oriented person going through Iran's university system, you're either going to become a very, very underpaid doctor or engineer, or maybe you're going to become an Islamic scholar. So ironically, some of the Islamic clergy in Iran has liberal tendencies. Uh, for example, did you know that in Iran, you can transition from male to female? You can become uh, a recognized, legally recognized woman, even if you were born a man. I'm not sure if they can do vice versa, but that's very interesting and strange for a country where homosexuality is still illegal and punishable by death. And I think they execute something like 10 or 12 people a year. Uh, but it's because there was a particular Islamic legal ruling and loophole that allowed for this. It actually allowed for this like a decade or two ago. Um, so it's a known, it's a known, um, it's, it's a known and, and developed thesis. That's not the kind of idea that a rural peasant that's, you know, living in poverty or even, you know, an impoverished urban person has. That's the kind of idea that a very highly uh, educated, though someone we would ideologically disagreed with person would be open to. And they're like, oh, interesting. Oh, the Quranic scholarship does point that way. Ha, huh, okay, that's surprising. I guess we can do that. Um, so the democratic element in Iran actually often is Islamic and conservative. Things are a bit different in Tehran and the richer parts of Iran, but there is really a division where the popular vision of the Islamic Republic is often what empowers the presidents of Iran. Uh, you know, people here might remember Ahmadinejad and so on and others, right? And then there is the very zealous and expeditionary Republican Guard, which in theory is there to sort of, you know, preserve the Islamic revolution. And they have their interests in operations where they get these little 
fiefdoms in places like Iraq, right? Uh, the General Soleimani, who was, uh, you know, killed by the United States, uh, was in fact crucial in carrying out these paramilitary operations of various kinds in Syria, in Palestine, in, in Iraq. Uh, the, you know, Republican Guard has this, uh, you know, the Revolutionary Guard has this complete, um, right to operate as it will in these areas and only limited oversights from the Guardian Council. So why did I sketch out the political economy of Iran in such detail? Well, you might understand then the Guardian Council, members of the Guardian Council might not agree with the Revolutionary Guard. Uh, they might not agree with the president. And while they are all in theory committed Islamists, committed to the Islamic Republic as a form of government, which note is itself a theological innovation, right? There was no such thing as an Islamic Republic. Uh, there was a caliphate historically. So, even, you know, even Ayatollah Khomeini was something of a fundamentalist modernist, or at least willing to do political innovation. Um, the result of this is that, you know, you could, for example, reach a private agreement that something like killing General Soleimani, who is a very popular folk hero, a symbol of the revolution, a symbol of Iran's strength abroad, that maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe that's even convenient for the Guardian Council. And maybe that means that if you intuit this, you can approve um, the killing of, uh, you know, someone like this, you know, essentially sponsor of terrorism from your perspective, if you're the United States or or Israel, that's like certainly true, and have a quiet deal that actually, while this technically is an act of war, we're, we're not going to treat it as an act of war. We're just going to condemn it. We're going to condemn it, but we're not, Iran's not going to do anything. And, you know, I think for the most part, history has borne this out. Iran actually did not uh, retaliate for that. Now, I cannot know, because I wasn't privy to these negotiations, why that kind of deal could be reached. But let me tell you, I think that's a very Kissingerian deal. I think that's a very shuttle diplomacy deal. You don't want to leave a paper record or a paper trail of any kind. Can you imagine a diplomat goes to an Iranian leader and the Iranian leader is like, you know what? Killing this general will actually make my life easier. And we're not going to retaliate if you guys were to do that. Even saying that in a room with recording is so dangerous, yet it's just the normal part of diplomacy and, and statecraft, right? Heads of state have always negotiated in these very, very um, harsh terms. I think the uh, so-called shuttle diplomacy is when you actually have someone go and speak to the other person. And often there's a large unofficial component. So to tie back to, you know, Kissinger's talents, he was very good at figuring out who to talk to in China who among the many factions within China was ascendant or not. Uh, he was good at intuiting that the Soviet Union and China, despite both being communist during the Cold War, were not allies, but more and more enemies, figured out how to talk about this. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, 
Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. To his credit, I think he understood that this is a function you can continue doing even after you leave office. In fact, there's something very interesting that is part of the role of being an elder statesman. If an elder statesman visits another country, there's often the assumption that he can say things that are unofficially the official policy of the country they left. If you imagine, for example, that I don't know, like the Soviet Union never really pursued this, but let's say for China, if uh, one of the previous premiers before Xi was allowed by Xi to visit the United States and speak privately with either Joe Biden or the previous president, Donald Trump, we would be quite, you know, we would be we would be quite foolish to assume that this visit wasn't approved. And also we know that we can't take the former premiers, former head of the party, whatever, former president's word uh, as official policy. So again, the, the role of a retired statesman can be to be a messenger with plausible deniability, because really they're just speaking to you as a private citizen. On the flip side, though, it's of course possible to exploit this perception. And, uh, you know, people have accused uh, Henry Kissinger of Kissinger and Associates being just basically like, you know, a shameless, uh, a shameless self-enrichment scheme uh, cooked up by the idea that, of course, you know, heads of state will want to meet with you. And then you can, you know, hawk various business deals and make a bunch of money on, under the guise of advice. Uh, and, you know, there is there is that aspect to it as well. To this point, Richard Hanania wrote a book about how when we think about domestic politics, we, we sort of accept public choice theory and this idea that sort of, uh, you know, uh, bureaucracies respond to their incentives and their incentives are often to grow their bureaucracy and get more budget and become more influential as opposed to actually solve the problem, but that we don't apply the same um, sort of public choice theory critique of foreign policy. Uh, and that just as you describe, uh, different factions have their own uh, interests, right? And he looks at uh, government contractors, the national security bureaucracy, foreign governments, um, and comes to similar, uh, s similar conclusions. So I, I think, um, yeah, that is just a nod to the to the point that you credit Kissinger with introducing of, hey, it's not just uh, it's a deeper form of realism. It's not just that uh, states act in accordance to interests, it's that factions within states act in accordance uh, to, to their interests. Um, perhaps to segue back to Kissinger, although feel free to jump in on, on, on that point. But but I was just going to ask you, what else can we take from from uh, from Henry's uh, sort of service experience, ideas, uh, skills? Uh, what else sort of uh, in intrigues you? Well, the very interesting thing is um, that at the end of the day, um, Henry Kissinger is like an American meritocracy success story. Right it is actually very rare in uh, the world to have someone who is not, you know, originally born in your country, 
uh, reached the level of, uh, you know, secretary uh, of state or, or foreign minister would be the equivalent title uh, somewhere. Uh, Henry Kissinger was born in Bavaria, spoke, of course, fluent German. Um, you can imagine why he left Germany, right? And he often reflected on why the Germany of his youth uh, ended up transforming so profoundly. And he often reflected on whether, you know, that he would likely be dead had he stayed in Germany as it as the Nazi party rose to power. Um, in the United States, you know, studied at Harvard. Uh, you know, he served in the military during World War II. Actually, as a result of that, and because of his German language skills, uh, he was briefly put in charge of like administrating a few German villages in like occupied Germany. Like, can you imagine how surreal that experience must be to you? Like a country that's still kind of your country, more familiar, that has gone through this absolutely atrocious thing. And then you come and you're like a military administrator there. That's, you know, I think that's where I have some empathy for his stoicism, which is a reflection of a big picture. People sometimes conflate it for ruthless cynicism, but I am calling it stoicism. It is that you remember in the grand sweeping arc of history, no matter how terrible your concrete tragedies are or tragedies that you see, there have been many other tragedies and many other triumphs and a hundred years from now or 200 years from now, uh, you know, people will view it with more detachment. So in a way, if you look at it, not from your own perspective, but from the big picture, maybe that's useful for formulating grand strategy and big policy, but it is also a form of um, emotional protection, spiritual protection against the difficulties and, and like um, honestly horrendous pain or suffering of, of your era, right? It is the, from the perspective of the universe, maybe this is actually okay in a way, or maybe there are bigger stories to be told than this story right in front of me. Um, but to go back to how it's a meritocratic success story, I think Harvard at the time was still great at getting in students. Uh, you know, it, it just recently, Harvard in the 40s had barely stopped discriminating against uh, Jewish Americans. You know, maybe this is something uh, Asian Americans today can relate to as they themselves are trying to get Harvard to stop discriminating against them in admissions. Uh, there was a literal quota system. I don't know if you do you know about this or Harvard had like a quota system in the 30s and so on. There was a joke the other day that there was a joke that that uh, Harvard finally figured out a way to get uh, have less Jews without uh, implementing a quota system. You know, in response to the sorry, anti-Semitism. That, yeah, that area. Oh no! <laughs> I I mean, the statistical evidence is pretty overwhelming that the Ivy League universities at this point are actively discriminating against Asian Americans, right? Because if they if they allowed as many, you know, if they if they were admitted at the same rates according to their SAT scores or whatever, right? To be way more of them. And you can see this in the Californian universities, right? That were, I think, barred from this kind of discrimination. Um, but, you know, we, we, we will see how this power struggle between Harvard University and the courts, how that ends up playing out and including the court of public opinion, which of course is retrying Harvard for various interesting things as the uh, recent congressional hearings showed. But uh, my point would be there was this wonderful window where, you know, an immigrant coming to the United States, excelling academically, historically, gets into Harvard. Harvard is still working as a networking grounds 
uh, had, I think, a political entanglement with like a member of, um, you know, someone that was running in New York. It might have been like the Rockefeller run or something. Uh, but, you know, ends up striking this interesting friendship with, you know, Richard Nixon, a guy from a Quaker family about as America's American as you can get, arch conservative, hyper anti-communist. But the two of them strike up a friendship. They talk, they work together. Partially what brought, um, Henry to Nixon's attention was the stuff that he wrote, the, the histories that he wrote, the, um, theses that he wrote, the papers that he wrote. And that also is an interesting sign of American meritocracy. Can you imagine a, mo a modern president reading books? And then liking the author of the book or the thesis so much that they want to meet him. Now, maybe it's before they become president, but same thing. Like imagine a governor or a congressman person. Like, I don't think that happens as much anymore. Right. And then also there's this practicality where everyone had basically served in World War II. So you have two meritocratic mechanisms, right? You have Harvard actually admitting people, uh, uh, the, the, and people actually reading things like a doctoral thesis or reading things like a master's thesis or reading things like a paper, thinking about it and then wanting to meet that person. So that's mechanism number one. And then mechanism number two, everyone of that generation served in the U.S. armed forces during World War II. They understood the coordination protocols then. So the result of this is, that, you know, someone who came from an educated background, but certainly not any sort of elite banker, statecraft, royal family, military family background, could rise to a position right next to the head of state and stay there for eight years over, you know, two presidents, uh, including Ford, um, you know, Nixon's successor. And I think both of these mechanisms are broken in the United States today. We like lightly critiqued Harvard University. Um, I think Harvard needs, you know, not just critique, but it needs replacement, which is harder. It's easier to say something doesn't work. It's much harder to make something that does work. And uh, academia in general has had a significant watering down of the extent to which uh, its written output is considered something that uh, elites not in academia should read or something that could have practical value or something that reveals something about you as a scholar rather than revealing something about the field, right? If you think about it, I think in the early 20th century, a doctoral thesis was a personal act, sometimes still an act of passion even. Today, a doctoral thesis is an act of credentialing. It is an act of conformism. It is an act of what can I get and defend as my thesis? So it became an act, uh, it became, it used to be a resume, now it is an act of compliance, of obeisance. It's almost a, a credo where you have to say, I believe and have shown these things in this like hyper narrow, hyper small thing versus, hey, I like thought about this. And here's my 200 page manifesto on history. You give me my diploma, please. And they're like, yeah, this is a great manifesto. Here's your diploma, bro. Like, like that's closer, right? That's closer to the vibe back in the day. And uh, I don't know how to revive that or replace that, but I think we're all trying, at least everyone on, on the West Coast, uh, every few years, someone has a new idea, I think, to try. And eventually something's going to stick. Yeah. There was a student who got into maybe Stanford or Brown by just in their college essay. They wrote hundreds of times, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And that was uh, sufficient obesity. The, it, that is a simple credo. <laughs>
I think it, it, it might've been uh Toynbee or some other historian uh, that once said, um, you know, that uh, the simplest credo to gain the adherence of millions of people was that, you know, uh, there is one God and Allah is his prophet. But I think Black Lives Matter is an even simpler credo. I think, I think we, this is a world historical innovation of the United States, I think. Fascinating. And one of the ironic things is that Kissinger in his last interview, this was going around some right-wing circles, he, he said, there's like no evidence diversity works or is better. It's like actually people who have a lot in common you know, get along well, work well together. Um, some people were, were, you know, taking that sort of, uh, yeah, just clipping that out. Just an interesting, uh, interesting point in light of sort of the, the you should listen to some of the, um, uh, Nixon tapes. They're pretty spicy. They, they would have a great podcast. Now, maybe, maybe they wouldn't be electable, but it would be a very fun podcast. I certainly don't agree with everything, uh, they say. These are like, you know, White House tapes of various discussion. Uh, you know, the president Richard Nixon had and the ones with Henry, I feel like they're almost like a stand up routine. Uh, like they, they'll like comment on like a culture and like foreign affairs and, and everything. And, um, you know, if someone hasn't created just a podcast channel with reposting the tapes with like, you know, a disclaimer, I think someone should do that. That would be like, I think, I think it would be pretty viral. Um, but to say something, you know, I think his observation came from personal experience because note again, he, he worked in the American system and the American system was always diverse, but didn't I just point to like two mechanisms of meritocracy? They were at the same time, a mechanism of sameness. Oh, you went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. Oh, you served in infantry. Well, I served in the Navy and you can create these, um, synthetic uniformities. Right. But I think even that has been. In a way, that sort of um, civic nationalism worked in the U.S., especially ascendant from 1940 to 1970. It's not clear it's working very well now because the idea of what should be the shared civic values, how they should be implemented, what the fair process is, I think that's all up in the air. So then if you have that and you add on top religious and ethnic diversity, then it really can't work. Maybe it could work if there was like, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming demographic uniformity of some kind, like the way China has it or Japan has it, or even Sweden has it at the end of the day, uh, at least compared to the United States. Um, um, I think that could maybe work. And I think in a way, India struggles with something very similar where it is grasping towards a more unified evolution of its politics, right? As soon as you have a country with many, many languages, many regional elites, uh, all of the problems of internal, let alone international diplomatic problems, uh, become very, very difficult. Um, I also think that he was a great uh, admirer of Lee Kuan Yew and once said that like Lee Kuan Yew was like the best statesman of the 20th century and that it's uh, very disproportionate how the state he got to govern was so small. But at least Henry Kissinger was convinced that had, uh, you know, Lee Kuan Yew governed a larger country, he, he would have made that country a great power. So that's also interesting and says something about his views and probably also says something about this kind of um, irreverent, pragmatic approach where you don't think that nationalism is something etched in stone eternally, but you do believe it's an important societal resource. And that's why you can create a Singapore out of a population of Han Chinese and, and South Asians and uh, Malay 
and it works, but you actually have to do it. That's really interesting. One thing I want to address is the critiques of, of Kissinger and, and, and his policy. He's a very controversial person, uh, particularly on the American left, but also mm-hmm. I think I think on the right as well. And I, I think one of the also critiques, on the right, yeah. Yeah. So what are the critiques? The critiques is that he's like on the right, I guess that he's a war hawk or something. And on the left that he's like a savage uh, or sort of like a savage in the sense of you know, brutal, uh, brutal killings and, you know, Cambodia, et cetera. Why don't you unpack yeah. or steal the critiques and then respond to them? Well, I think uh, first off, um, I think on the right, the critique used to be that he was kind of a hawk and pursuing unnecessary foreign policy entanglements. Uh, this is a decently common critique in the old right and libertarian circles because it's related to state expenditure, private rights, and so on. You actually have like an anti-interventionist peaceful component of the American right. So that critique was there, and that was essentially uh, part of the critique. A different type of critique, which was popular in the 1980s that I alluded to uh, you know, earlier in our episode, was uh, this critique that he was too soft on the Soviet Union because Kissinger, like, and Nixon kind of masterminded this dual approach of we will be soft on the Soviet Union. We'll have the like, you know, uh, the Apollo spacecraft and the Soyuz spacecraft docked in orbit and the astronauts had a well-televised, you know, handshake. That was kind of like a key symbolic moment of like coexistence and a desire for future cooperation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But there was a whole number of policies like the strategic strategic arms limitation treaties, the SALT treaties, right, that limited the amount and type of various kinds of nuclear missiles, which, by the way, again, I think were a very good idea for reducing this terrible risk of nuclear war uh, that we discussed in depth uh, in last episode, the terrible risk of a nuclear war between two countries with truly vast arsenals. So that was a, a critique that was soft on communism. Uh, there was a saying only Nixon could go to China. I think as time has gone on, people have credited or blamed Kissinger more and more. And Nixon, they remember less and less, probably just because Nixon died in 1994, right? So, you know, the one survivor gets to be the person that's always mentioned with regard to a policy. But I think in important ways, Nixon was definitely a partner, a co-creator, maybe even the senior partner in the foreign policy. He certainly vetoed uh, some of Kissinger's pet ideas in office. This is a matter of record. Actually, one of my earlier uh, research dives was uh, visiting the uh, presidential uh, library and archives in uh, Yorba Linda, not too far from uh, Los Angeles, and spending time there, uh, you know, studying uh, studying some of these White House records. Uh, there's really wonderful stuff there. It's Most of it's been digitalized, but you can still... Uh, request some of the stuff that's not been digitalized and dive into it. And uh, I have uh, some articles that I will publish on this eventually once I get around to rewriting them. Uh, Still, it's a matter of historic and public record that there were disagreements and that sometimes often actually Nixon won out. He was a forceful personality. Uh, The critiques, however, that rise from this on the right are at first soft on communism, but in recent years, a very big critique was actually, no, you were, you de facto were a Chinese asset. You opened up the China, uh, the Chinese economy to trade with us. And the result of this was this industrialization and rise of China. I don't think it was 
you know, maybe with the business dealings in China in the late 1990s and early 2000s, that became a factor. But the original reason for the opening to China, I think, was just real foreign policy, where it wasn't, oh, we're going to make China rich and I'm going to become rich in China. No, the idea was we're going to be both nice to the Soviet Union, but let them know we have options. So if they don't play nice with us, we're going to play nice with China. We're going to open trade with China and build them up to be a real rival to the Soviet Union. And I think the thinking was, and by the way, I believe this was still the thinking due to some other historical sources I've looked at from 1992, 1993, 1994. Um, I think that the thinking was, well, if China ever gets out of hand, we are going to balance them out with Russia all over again, right? Balance of power. The concert of Europe in the 19th century might have been Prussia balancing France, balancing Britain, balancing Russia. Well, maybe they thought they could be a world a sort of concert of the world where, you know, Russia and China and the U.S. balance each other, and there's no need for a third world war, just as there was no need for a second or a third or a fourth revival of war against France. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think that this was not a course that was taken by the United States. Like if the United States was serious about China containment, they should have pivoted hard to a to a pro-Russia type alliance in the early 2000s, not because Putin is nice, actually because Putin and Putin's Russia is a declining place, uh, buffing those countries up would have actually made them, uh, if they were willing to break with China, it would actually make those countries very dependent on the US. And ironically, there might have never been an invasion of Ukraine, never been an annexation of Crimea, because those countries would depend on the US, right? Just as today, there is an important way in which Saudi Arabia depends on the United States. If the United States were to sanction Saudi Arabia the same way it sanctions Iran, well, you know, the Saudi royal family would suddenly be very, very poor. China would have no reason to give Saudis like extremely lucrative deals if they know they are the Saudis' only choice. And in fact, Iran exports oil to China and, you know, they're not paid very well because China's like, why should we overpay? Why should we overpay? We're your only choice, right? Uh, so I think these critiques still have merit that he could have spoken more strongly on China and he never did so in the 90s and 2000s. He spoke in favor of a strategic partnership with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was against Ukrainian, Ukrainian membership in NATO all the way up until the invasion changed his opinion to, after the invasion, look, post-war Ukraine has to be part of NATO because Russia is a threat to Ukraine. We can't have a future war. However, Ukraine might have to give up some territory. Again, a very Kissingerian update. Now, on the left, his critiques are much more normal. You've heard the term war criminal, right? Probably thrown around. It was for the illegal bombing of Cambodia. And, you know, there's some spicy statements, he says, you know, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a while. I think that's a very cynical view of politics. And I love it personally. Why do I love it? Because I think it's realistic. And I think people who see other things, uh, they often end up doing things that are illegal and unconstitutional. I think we have a fundamental paradox in Western thought where we greatly overestimate the willingness or ability or plausibility of the state restraining itself, 
right? What is the state restraining itself? It's like the state writes a law and then the state abides by that law. I think we've achieved some success in Western historical development with having checks and balances, et cetera. But let's put it this way. I think we've achieved 20% or 10% checks and balances and 80% powerful people do what powerful people want to do and what they need to do. Uh, to stay powerful and to not be muscled out by someone else. So a kind of political Darwinism there. So that's why I appreciate it because I feel were it not for these types of statements by people like Henry Kissinger, I think any sort of political analysis would be much harder because no one would plainly speak what's happening, right? What's actually going on. Uh, and without those statements, it can be very difficult to give a realistic analysis. Uh, I wish there were more flamboyant and sometimes controversial quips by uh, U.S. officials today. I think it would make uh, it much easier to make sense of U.S. foreign policy if they were. Uh, but they're all much more timid people than the people of the 70s, the 50s, and so on. Verbally, at least. Militarily, uh, they intervene as much as they ever did. Now, why was the bombing of Cambodia relevant? It was relevant for putting pressure on North Vietnam uh, to try to exit and pull out of this war, the Vietnam War. By the time uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger inherited the war, it was already wildly unpopular, right? The war was already ongoing. Uh, it was Lyndon B. Johnson actually who began the war. And it was only a question of, should the US leave immediately? Or should the US try to get, and the catchphrase Nixon came up with was uh, peace with honor where the idea was that South Vietnam would be built up to the point where it could defend itself. And of course, you know, that never happened. The famous helicopter, uh, you know, video and photography of uh, the helicopter leaving the embassy, right, evacuating U.S. personnel. I think we saw a repeat of this, actually. We saw a repeat of this um, in Afghanistan, and we immediately forgot about it, right, because... Uh, you know, uh, the current thing moved on from Afghanistan to Ukraine very soon afterwards. Uh, but it's a, it's a comparable geopolitical defeat. And, you know, I do think, I do think the way the Vietnam War was waged had many humanitarian considerations. It was mismanaged in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, if we use that as the standard for war crimes, what is a war crime here? There's not the, oh, they slaughtered civilians, right? It's more of a technical definition uh, that they, they people have argued, which is a kind of conspiracy to wage war. Like, so sort of that you take political action uh, that is like not is legal or is in the gray area to bring about war. We forget this today, but when the term war crimes, when these terms were being listed, even in the Nuremberg trials, um, you know, a lot of top Nazi officials uh, were convicted on this conspiracy to wage war. They weren't even convicted on any sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, atrocities they had committed. Um, but that's because in 1945, most of the planet thought of the main crime of the Nazis being World War II, right? That was considered to be the worst thing. Uh, the realities and the moral gravity of the Holocaust became more recognized in the 60s and 70s and later. Uh, that means that, you know, there's this technical definition of a conspiracy to wage war. And I think if Henry Kissinger is guilty of it, uh, he, pro he probably is, honestly. I think every Secretary of State is guilty of it. So the question then is, 
Why do we single out Henry Kissinger? Has there been a Secretary of State since Henry Kissinger, since 1978, that has not done a borderline illegal thing to get the U.S. into a war? Like I asked this seriously, I would love to hear examples from the audience. Uh, people are welcome to, you know, DM me or email me your, your favorite and most peaceable Secretary of State, and maybe I'll write a glowing article about them. I'll wait. <laughs> no, no, but th again, this is, I think it's, look, he, he likes history. He likes a big picture. He has a self-protective, very central European cynicism, which I, I totally actually understand, right? I'm from Slovenia. We have this like very dark sense of humor, right? Where it's like, yes, the authorities are evil and the government is evil. And what are you going to do? You got to live your life, right? And, uh, you know, the history of Eastern and Central Europe, it's like often you just have to pick the lesser evil, right? And you have to decide and you better decide, well, what is the lesser evil? And then there's this, uh, you know, direct sense of humor that I think offends uh, Anglo sensibilities because they want to be very polite and very nice. Like even when they were waging, uh, you know, British, the British Empire was waging an opium war in China, they would often sort of misrepresent it to be a war of free enterprise rather than a war of pushing drugs <laughs> on China. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's something there where he is scapegoated for problems or had been scapegoated for problems inherent to international affairs, for problems inherent in the world order. The world order is in fact violent and the the business of government, uh, I'm here reminded of a, of, a, of a line by Otto von Bismarck, which is like, you know, that it's best not to know how laws and sausages are made, lest you lose all respect for them, right? So the business of government even in the Western world, has blatantly illegal and criminal components. We only tend to notice this in um, in other countries, in countries we don't like, right? We notice it for Putin. We might notice it for Viktor Orban, even though we acknowledge that that's a democracy. Uh, we tend to not want to notice it, at least when it's members of our own political parties, right? Uh, when they committed in so-called developed, stable, free countries. I'm tempted to ask, Something along the lines of if Kissinger were ruling the, the last couple decades of, of foreign policy, you know, where else might things be different? But I'm also mindful of time and also just want to give you the space to comment on anything that you haven't gotten a chance to say yet as it relates to this topic of either Kissinger or sort of world order more broadly. Obviously, we'll do future episodes uh, on this as well. But uh, yeah, looking at time, just want to also give you the floor. Well, he was a close personal friend of uh, Schultz and also influenced other uh, people across the political spectrum. Uh, so, in fact, his influence is discernible in U.S. foreign policy, right? Uh, I think, for example, Hillary Clinton actually had a good foreign policy idea, the so-called pivot to Asia, uh, that's under-discussed and I actually think would not have resulted in war with China, uh, which was the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Europe and deploying them basically in Southeast Asia. So this wouldn't like increase budget and so on. Uh, people curious can read about that. That to me, again, strikes me as a very Kissingerian idea. It's like, if China has become a problem, let us reach some sort of deal with Russia and redeploy our military forces to match a new reality. 
And the alternative proposed by some, and I think the unworkable alternative that is now gaining prominence, is the idea that the U.S. can just take on the whole world at the same time. That is a recipe for imperial exhaustion, right? And I don't think he would have made that mistake. I don't think necessarily his... his um, vision of the world would have resulted in that much justice, though he did believe in some justice. Uh, he actually commented that, you know, he thought justice was a component of a lasting peace. Uh, but I think he would have been cautious with the U.S. using its force. It would be, he would be, you know, comfortable with the use of force, right? But he would have been a bit more restrained. And I think in that regard, uh, we can think of him as a diplomat. I do think his actions on net, both with the detente with the Soviet Union, but also then synthesizing and advocating with Ronald Reagan, you know, basically befriending him and hearing this more pressure, high pressure position and moderating it on the margins. I do think he reduced greatly the risk of a global nuclear war. And, you know, if you think of this as someone who's basically traumatized by the tragedy of the events of his old homeland and his new adopted homeland and seeing the effects of a global devastating war, trying his best to reduce the risk of a nuclear war, then a lot of these very um, rough, very um, like coarse methods, right? Diplomatically used where you put, we don't, don't just say nice words, but you put pressure and you say some words and then if the words are reciprocated, you actually remove the pressure. You do not stay in Afghanistan for 20 years, right? You you maybe go into Afghanistan, negotiate with the Taliban and immediately pull out and the Taliban like give you 50 of their top people for you to execute or something like that. Uh, have a proper trial, an anti-terrorism trial or whatever. Uh, that was not done. Instead, we were just in Afghanistan and stayed for 20 years. And then the Taliban were back in charge, right? I think this is... Uh, this is something um, I, I do feel personally sort of angry about. And, and what, what is this anger? I don't often acknowledge anger. It is people are in denial of just the realities of war very profoundly. And then if someone speaks plainly about the realities of war, uh, we shoot the messenger, right? Reputationally rather than being like, oh, actually, you're right. This wasn't a sports game. Uh, I wasn't cheering uh, for uh, something innocuous. People are dying, and the policy is going to decide whether we like it or not, who is going to die. Yeah. The, um, do you, maybe, maybe as a last question, are there any core disagreements? <laughs> it's a very, it's a very Kissinger episode. I hope not too much. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, uh, do you have any core disagreements with uh, with Kissinger, or do you find him sort of a kindred um, spirit in terms of uh, approach to the world or approach to um, geopolitics or foreign policy? I I think I'm a great admirer of anyone who both practices, who both reads and practices history. Right, not only studies it but shapes it. Um, I also think that. I'm a great fan of restraining the use of force if possible. And I think there must be a realism in the limits of, um, in the limits of the application of military force around the world. Finally, I like people who present things as they are. And I think there is a virtue in being blunt about things that are in reality blunt, 
right? A war is a blunt instrument, no matter how you take it. And calling a war an intervention and so on doesn't make it less bloody. So I appreciate his contribution to political science. He's a credible voice I can cite uh, when talking about some of this. So, uh, you know, I think that all of his works uh, deserve uh, reading and it is definitely worthy entry in the understanding of politics, war and diplomacy. That's a, that's a great place to wrap. Uh, Samuel, another great episode. And uh, until next week. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.